0: you have an Airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: the chancellor of the exchequer getting a lesson from the shadow chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank
2: egg balls a steady as she goes budget what kind of ship does he think he's on the Titanic The me Celeste
1: Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency. With Ed Balls and George Osborne.
2: Hello and welcome to Ex-Ministers' Questions, EMQs, our episode dedicated to all your fantastic questions that you've sent in to George and me. We love reading them, loads of insights, feedbacks, do keep sending them in. And I'm very pleased to say, as I hinted at in our last podcast, that we've had a question from... A Matt Hancock fan, there is one in the nation.
1: We should definitely start with that question. And by the way, thank you for all the questions and comments you've been sending in. But yes, I particularly like this question. And it was from Emma. And she asked, I wonder if there are any politicians that you think are misunderstood or unfairly criticised by the press. I've been keeping a close eye on the COVID inquiry. And while this might be an unpopular opinion, obviously not with those who voted for Matt in the jungle. He did come third, after all. But I think Matt Hancock is one of the only people who's come out of it with any credibility. Perhaps I'm wrong, but from what I've read, he did a good job in difficult circumstances. And unlike some other politicians, Matt actually kept his WhatsApps. So first of all, I will declare an interest. Matt was my chief of staff. Are you
2: sure this question is from Emma and not from Matt from Suffolk?
1: (laughs) It's not Matt from Suffolk. I think Matt was my chief of staff, worked unbelievably hard and effectively in that role. But, uh, you know, I think the more we hear about the chaos of government decision-making during the inquiry and the Boris Johnson premiership, by the way, also what was going on in the Scottish government, you know, Matt emerges as one of the few sane, sensible people in the room who has, to his great credit, during that period, the vaccine rollout. Britain was the first of the major countries to not only get the vaccine, but deploy it. And then he also got a load of shit for having his WhatsApp messages all published. But it turns out he was basically the only one who kept the WhatsApp messages, and everyone else from Nicola Sturgeon to Rishi Sunak to Boris Johnson have deleted them. So he got a very unfair press for doing the honest thing and keeping them.
2: The problem for for Matt, look, we will see what the inquiry says when it finally reports. But the testimony in the autumn was a whole series of people, Downing Street officials, advisors, politicians, saying that they had been assured that we were well prepared, the preparations had been put in place, the health department had a grip, and that when it actually came to it, the preparations weren't really in place. And isn't that the thing which is part of his problem, that, that he gave the impression confidently that he was, he was under control? And then it turned out that it wasn't.
1: But he couldn't really say, look, nation, we've got this unknown virus. No one's done any preparation for it and it's all a bit chaotic. You know, he had to exude confidence that there was a plan. And on the thing... But that why was, hadn't he done
2: the prep? Because, we, you know, because, that was his job. Because no one in the world had prepared for an
1: unknown coronavirus. I mean, there was no country that you know did it markedly better than Britain. I mean, it, it, amongst the Western democracies, that you know, that's one thing that's emerged. And... I think when you look at the kind of single thing that Britain did differently, positively, i.e. it developed, licensed, agreed a vaccine, and then, we all remember this, delivered the vaccine to tens of millions of people. Matt was one of the people, not the only person, of course. There were lots of brilliant officials working on this, other ministers and so on. But Matt was a part of that. And, you know, I think sometimes, you you know, he's obviously got a style... A, a kind of self confident style that winds people up. But I would say, who do you want in the room in those situations? You want someone who's sensible, who's done the work, who's making rational decisions. And there were quite a few people who were not like that at the time. And Matt was one of the people who was providing a saner balance.
2: Fair enough. Um, the vaccine anyway. was a triumph. I'm afraid. He won't be remembered for any of those issues. He'll be remembered for the way in which he resigned and for the fact that he was breaking his own rules by having the on-camera clinch with his advisor he then left his family for. And I think his biggest problem popularly with the public is him saying as an explanation that, look, he was in love. We were in love. Like, that's an excuse. And there were loads of people who were in love but couldn't go and visit them in hospital or they were in love with loved ones and they couldn't go to their funeral. And when he uses that explanation, people think, I know, but that's not right. And I was denied things because I kept the rules and you broke them. And that is his fundamental problem.
1: Well, it's certainly true that politicians who didn't play by their own rules have come a cropper during the COVID period, of which Boris Johnson is the best example. Anyway, let's move on to our next question, which is actually on a related topic. And it's from Charlotte. She asks... What would you propose to do about social care? I'm a disabled person who needs care all my life. It's a short question, but it's one of the biggest unanswered questions in British politics.
2: It's true. And it's a question on which we've all failed for a very long time. And, um, you know, I've seen the challenge of social care in my own life, because my mum's lived in social care for a few years now, made a BBC documentary. I trained as a social care worker and worked for a number of weeks in social care. And there was this short period where it looked like there was going to be a big cash injection coming from the Boris Johnson national insurance tax rise. And then that Went away, and it's such a problem. I think that the absolute thing we have to do is get to a cross party plan. And the way I would go about this to answer um, Charlotte's question I think we need a review which is announced now before the election but won't report until after the election where you've got a chance of building up some head of steam in manifestos and then implementing it afterwards. A bit
1: like with tuition fees.
2: What happened with tuition fees with John Brown happened in a different way with Oneless. And you can do The
1: pension age, the Adair Turner. The Adair
2: Turner Pension Age one as well, the Oneless Review of NHS funding. And you could either do this when you have an independent figure but if you have an independent figure doing it, it's really important that they have the, the weight and the backing from the political parties to do it. And that happened with the Brown Review. Or you can have it led by somebody political, but then you've got to have cross-party sign-up. But somehow we have to have a mechanism which gets it onto the agenda, gets everybody signed up, and then gets it but, delivered.
1: Let me just sort of challenge that because we have had things like the Not Review into social care. Andrew Dillon, very respected.
2: It was never heavyweight enough, and it was never entrenched enough. There wasn't an effort made by you and David to build a cross-party consensus at the beginning. And you have to build uh, But that was
1: partly because I didn't think it was going to solve the problem, particularly. I mean, I think sometimes people say, oh, it's a disgrace the government hasn't come up with an answer on social care. And that is because the country is divided on social care. It it is sometimes when there's a real big political problem – There's a reason why it hasn't been solved, even though lots of people have tried. And on social care, there are two big questions which are unanswered and which people have very strong views about. First is, who delivers social care? Should it be a big national service like the NHS, where everyone's employed by the state? Or should we stick with a system of lots of little care homes independently run, family businesses... Some of them are chains and some run by the local councils. So you've got a whole fierce argument on both sides about that. And then crucially, a big division on who should pay for it. Should it be all of us paying in our general taxes, in which case you and I are going to have our social care paid for by people who earn much less than us paying taxes as a result to do that? Or should people who've got some money, got their own house, be forced to sell that house to pay for their social care at the end of their lives, because it's not fair to ask people who don't have a house to pay for that social care. So that's and right. because, because you've got these big divisions, that's a reason why no one's been able to come up with a solution. Now, how it's a good question you pose, which is, okay, there've been big divisions in the past on things like how you provide hospital care in Britain, but Clement Attlee built a consensus around a national health service. So you, you can create consensuses around difficult questions. It just hasn't happened on social care.
2: Uh, look, but we are heading towards a massive crisis. And it's a crisis which is also undermining the National Health Service. And there is an answer to both of those points. On the who pays, we've put in place now a way of capping the individual contribution so that you don't lose your house. And I think there is a consensus around that. So we've constrained any one individual's exposure, but there is a funding need. And then on the um, on who provides it, We aren't going to nationalise this into one publicly owned national health system. And we don't do that with, for example, primary care and GPs. But what you need to do is have an overarching umbrella of commissioning so that the commissioning happens in a similar way across the country and where you have pay and staff progression, which means people in one part of the country can move to another part of the country and they come under um, a social care umbrella. It can can be done. We can argue this out. But But there has to be a mechanism to make it happen.
1: I, look, you know, I devolve social care and NHS operations in Manchester, and I think that's another way forward. But I, all I'd say is, you know, there's a, when sometimes you've got big unanswered problems in politics, there's a reason for it, rather than people just assuming the politicians are stupid or they can't, you know, or they can't get along with each other. There's, there's some fundamental things. And as you alluded to, when the last time anyone tried to raise some money for this by increasing national insurance, Boris Johnson did this, ironically, and Rishi Sunak as chancellor, everyone voted against them and they were Boris Johnson was kicked out and Rishi Sunak had to
2: reverse it. Anyway. The, there's also another thing, which is we all know about schools and we all know about the National Health Service. But social care is something which is painful, difficult, and quite a lot of us don't want to think about it until we have to. And when you're in denial about something, it's harder to get the political energy to really make it happen. I'd love to talk about this more. We can't today, but that was a brilliant question, Charlotte. Next up, Adam, been in touch with a question for George and he sent a voice note. Hi, Adam. George. Um, This is a question for George. In 2015, you were appointed First Secretary of State in addition to being Chancellor. Was this just a title or did it come with specific job responsibilities?
1: Well, Adam, you're the only person in the country, apart from my mother, who knows that I was First Secretary of State. But so I'm glad you you noticed. This was a job I took on in 2015. I guess it was partly a kind of promotion because we'd won the election, partly because the previous First Secretary of State, William Hague, had stepped back. And as I think I explained on a, one of our previous podcasts, William Hague was first secretary of state so that he could chair the cabinet during the coalition if David Cameron was absent rather to than Nick Clegg, oh, right, rather see. than a liberal Democrat chairing the cabinet. So the first secretary of state is the sort of ranking member under the prime minister. There isn't always a first secretary of state. It doesn't it come with any responsibilities. You deputize for the prime minister. So you stand in at prime minister's questions. There are some military and intelligence things you do as a deputy to the prime minister. And uh, curiously, the Chancellor Exchequer is not a Secretary of State. So you can't sign various things that require a government minister to sign them, various warrants and stuff. So when you're first Secretary of State, you can do that. All quite a technical approach, but I just quite like the sound of the title as well.
2: Are you sure that Peter Mandelson, in one of your sort of you know meetings somewhere in the world, didn't say to you, George... Why aren't you first secretary? I was first secretary. What's happened? <laughs> this
1: was not a suggestion from Peter Mandelson. Good though he is on titles. Sure?
2: I think I had you weren't there on deck having a drink, he, and he, he said George. The title. I think it's look at the Greek coast, and then said first secretary. Why not?
1: Well, he, there were various ideas that Peter Mandelson dripped into my ear, if you're using the phrase into my, at the time. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's probably true that he sort of... Subliminal. Re- he, he kind of revived the title. He did. I don't know how he ended up. I mean, how did, how come Gordon Brown made him first? It was a
2: reshuffle of 2009. You know, There was speculation, would I become Chancellor? James Spinell resigns. Is David Miliband going to, you know, kind of challenge? All this is going on. And subtly within all of that, Peter Mandelson emerges as First Secretary, and I think also the Lord Chancellor post. What, what do you call The um, President of the Council. Lord President of the Council. Which meant that were the... Um, it means you chair the Privy Council in front of the king. And, and, and were the monarch to die, you would then carry the sword and do all of the stuff which Penny Morden did last year. And so um, I think Peter, I don't probably, think Peter, Peter would, was whispering and said to you, George, you got the wrong job, first secretary, honorific, you should have actually been president on I mean,
1: the council. magnificent though Penny was holding that sword and actually I don't think anyone could have done it better. It would have been quite amusing to see Peter Mandelson Holding that sword for hours and hours on the end of the uh, coronation.
2: I'm right. not sure he would have
1: been able to keep it up.
2: So we've confirmed that it wasn't his overt suggestion, but it may have been subliminal. After the break, we'll hear a question from a little birdie. I don't know if it's one of your little birdies or another little birdie, all about a social media faux pas which Rishi Sunak's got himself involved in. <laughs>
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: So welcome back. As I said, we've had a question from a little birdie. Not sure if it's one of Georgia's little birdies, but because it's anonymous. So we don't know. But here's what it says. I found out that Rishi Sunak made an appearance on the social media sensation that is Top Jaw, where he shared his favourite restaurant recommendations. Downing Street were very excited about this and thought it would help boost the PM's profile amongst younger voters. Unfortunately, it was received so badly by Top Jaw's followers that the owners of the account deleted it from their channel within minutes. I managed to take a screen grab before the video was deleted, which I'm sharing as evidence.
1: So for those who don't know, Top Jaw on TikTok is great. You get kind of chefs telling you what their favourite restaurants are across Britain. Here's an example in case people haven't seen it. Best restaurant in London. The Noble Rock Mayfair. They have a really lovely bar that you can go have a drink in. Best bar or pub. Pub, the Golden Heart, without doubt. Best burger. If I'm ever going to have a burger, I do go to Mackey Big Mac's cheeseburger. <laughs> Best
2: so there we are. Our little birdies also sent us a question. It turns out that our anonymous source used to work in government comms. So they're obviously scarred by having to clear up after over-eager digital teams have got ministers into trouble. And what our source is asking us is, are there any social media mishaps that we've been involved in, which, you know, can rival the Sunak disaster?
1: Ed, have you screwed up on it? Has there been a social media mess up that we should be aware of is there some very famous day in the year that started with a i was about to say a fuck up but i can't say that on uh the, started with, all right well, what, do, I, what do you call it fat fingers when you mistype something
2: i'm definitely somebody who um, has made a social media faux pas, but as a consequence i have a day named after me which you know saint george has and so does martin luther king and you don't social media faux pas It's about politicians who try to use a new medium and then don't understand it and get it wrong. Do you remember in the expenses scandal, Gordon Brown did a YouTube video, this new thing called YouTube, talking about expenses. But he was told you've got to be sort of, you know, modern, relaxed about it. And so he kept smiling. Going around the country, I've been struck by the comments that are made about young people when I meet them. About what jobs and actually smiling about expenses wasn't really the right thing to do. Uh, the Nick Clegg, his I'm sorry, social media video was like a disaster. Well, and was, was lampooned. A, it was everywhere. a party
1: election broadcast that got lampooned on social media, and people. Is the fact that you you know you remember it like that is what a Shows that, what a disaster a it, was. it was. It actually got parodied on. And then it.
2: there was also Ed Miliband going to do his um, his Russell Brand interview in the yeah. 2015 election campaign, which is also... Probably
1: doesn't doesn't talk about that so much. No.
2: These Hang on a minute. We okay, before feel- we get on to HSBC, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but do you accept my fundamental point? The NHS, Yeah. The NHS is I think it's in the end, it's people stepping into new places and doing new things and not quite understanding what they're up to.
1: But then, you know, everyone gets the piss taken out of them when they like, well, Gordon Brown with YouTube. I remember when you know, I went on Twitter, everyone said, oh, this is ridiculous gimmick. And then they become the absolute mainstream ways of communication. What did David
2: Cameron say? Too many twits might make a twat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes. And now look, you know, X has become the, the place where only politicians talk to each other. And I'm sure the same is happening with TikTok. Uh, in fact, we've got a very lively TikTok account ourselves. You should check it out. It's not us doing dances, by the way. It's no. just uh, synchronized dances. Very um, good. Whoever
2: the little birdie was, thank you.
1: I think Rishi Sunak shouldn't get too hard a time for trying these things out no you know, even if the fans of top jaw didn't like it
2: just to say we did get in touch with downing street and also top jaw because look obviously we're really keen to hear riccinax restaurant review and we can't quite work out why it's not still up on that social media site so if they come back to us and tell us what happened and if it's going to appear then we will let you know next time round
1: anyway um, i'm not sure by the way a food site is the right for a prime minister, doesn't he? It's, it's, <laughs> <But anyway. laughs> he
2: fast. It's ridiculous. Anyway, on to our next question, this time not anonymous. It's from Michael.
1: Hello, Ellen George. Really love the show. Very interesting with some very funny stories. Could you tell me where the Chatham House rule applies and if you have ever
0: been caught out by it?
2: Well, Michael, it turns out, is actually the dad of Ellie, producer, which is why he's obviously jumped to the top of the queue of our very long list of questions. But it's uh, brilliant that, he, that he's loving the show. I thought we're we weren't really supposed
1: pleased. to reveal Aren't we under Chatham House rules?
2: We shouldn't have revealed that, Ed. So let me tell you what Chatham House say the rule actually is. This is a think tank place in London, and the rule says when a meeting or part thereof is held under the Chatham House rule, participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speaker, nor that of any other participant. So you can report what's being said, but not who said it or who they said it's it not to. it's not off the record. Is It's not off the record. But you the, the,
1: the difference is that off the record, you're not supposed to report it. Exactly, well, you can... at all.
2: Right, right. On background would be you can use it, but you can't actually have any kind of quotes. I think Chatham House Rules means you can say what's being said, but you can't attribute it to anybody, either who's speaking or who they're speaking it to. I actually had a Chatham House Rule moment it, back in 2003. I was Chief Economic Advisor to the Treasury, and I was invited to a, be on a panel about this single currency, the euro, which I was quite cautious about, at Chatham House. So I'm in Chatham House assuming we're on Chatham House rules, I say what I wanted to say about the euro. And the next morning, the Sun newspaper, in a total breach of Chatham House rules, splashed the newspaper with balls to the euro, with a picture of my face on the front page, reporting everything I'd said. And I went into Gordon Brown's office and Gordon says, what is this in the Sun? And I said, it was under Chatham House rules. And he said to me, don't you understand? There's no such thing as Chatham House rules. <laughs> so um, that is my... Um... Well,
1: Gordon's right that if something is sufficiently interesting, then oh, frankly, it doesn't last that you're... You say, oh, but I said that, and, you know, I didn't think anyone would report it. If something's big enough, then it, it always comes out. Anyway, you... Say, Chatham House rules did not apply in Chatham House.
2: The, the interesting thing, there's, um, there's also, you know, while we're talking about this, these terms, there's also Privy Council terms. We're both members of the Privy Council, appointed by the Queen. Privy Council terms means you talk in private, normally about important things, and you don't reveal any of it. It would be terrible to reveal it. And there's another one called, on lobby terms, mm. the press corps of Parliament are the lobby and there's a thing called lobby terms, and lobby terms means that you agree in advance the terms on which you're having the conversation, and then have the conversation. So we could say on lobby terms it's going to be on background, no names, or treasury source, or government spokesman, or not for attribution. But lobby terms means you have a conversation mm. on whatever terms you define, and then from then on you can't be, break it.
1: To be fair to the lobby, i.e. the journalists who report on Parliament. Who literally therefore have access to the lobby outside the Chamber of the House of Commons? That's where it comes from. I would say lobby terms are probably the strongest of all of those things, things most likely to protect you. That's yeah. right, it's absolutely sort of fundamental to the profession of journalism, and yeah. it's
2: also a repeated game. Yeah. So if you break lobby terms, you're not going to get an you're from. never going to get anybody speak to you again. And there are lunches called lobby lunches where you go as a politician to have lunch with two journalists from different papers. You agree at the start the terms. You know, Is it off the record? Is it on background? Is it whatever source? And then from then on, you have the lunch and you know you're not going to get shafted. Yes.
1: Reminds me of one of my best Michael Gove stories when he was working for the Times newspaper. And the editor of the Times calls him in and says, Michael, I've got to query your expenses because you claim to have had lunch with Ken Clark. And I had lunch with him on the same day. And Michael said, oh, the greedy bastard. <laughs>
2: Finally, a niche policymaking question. We've had a voice note from Theo.
1: Please could you discuss the politics of Sunday trading rules? Banning shops from opening on a Sunday morning seems strikingly illiberal and inconsistent with a desire to drive growth. Reforming that seems an easy enough lever to pull. But why is this so hard for both major parties? And specifically, why couldn't George sort this out between 2010 and 2016? Well, it's a very good point, Theo. I did try as my defence and I got defeated in the House of Commons. So I tried not to abolish the Sunday trading rules, which, by the way, say that large shops can't open for more than six hours on a Sunday. That itself was a major step forward about 30 years ago and was very controversial. But uh, large shops like big supermarkets, big DIY shops, department stores, they can't open for more than six hours. And in 2016, I said, why don't we make, let local areas decide which shops can open? Because there is already an exemption for smaller Shops, which was introduced to kind of protect the corner shop and the newsagent. And now is the reason why you've got all those sort of metro stores and small supermarkets. So I tried to do it in 2016, and I was completely beaten. And I thought it would be a straightforward way to revive the high street and create some jobs. And it was an unholy alliance, I use that advisedly, between the Church of England and – who wanted to keep Sunday special – The Usdor Shop Union, which, like all good trade unions, didn't actually want any more people employed in their profession. And then finally, the supermarket chains that had bought up the smaller shops and were already open on a Sunday. And they didn't want to let their competitors, who had bigger shops, open. So it was was a combination of capitalism, the church and the unions that uh, led to a pretty humiliating defeat.
2: Well, when I was growing up, we um, were a church going family and we didn't go to the shops on Sunday. We wouldn't go to the cinema either. And I've grown up with the idea that Sunday is special. And I think there's always been a, a Labour tradition about not just... Protecting working people and having a day off, but also the sort of religious, Methodist, nonconformist traditions, as well as Church of England, about keeping Sunday protected. I left the Financial Times to work for Gordon Brown and Tony Blair in 1994. And I arrived, and they were in offices. They'd just been moved to Seven Mill Bank, which is a long way away from Parliament. And I had this office. I was actually sharing with a young researcher called Yvette Cooper, which is a different story. And we had no phone in the office, and we didn't get a phone for a year. And it was really annoying. Why were the offices, why had they been moved, Blair and Brown, down to the, the edge of the parliamentary estate, actually outside the parliamentary estate, also had places with no telephones? And the answer was because of Sunday trading. In 1994, there was a Sunday trading act which went through. Blair and Brown voted for it, and the whip who was in charge of the Labour side was a Welsh MP called Ray Powell, who was fervently against... Sunday trading. And he couldn't understand how these young whippersnappers were voting with the government and so they were punished. They were banished to these new new offices with no telephones for a year, all because Ray Powell was so furious about them supporting Sunday trading. So, you know, deep roots.
1: By the way, you can definitely listen to this podcast or any of our podcast episodes on a Sunday, we are, we are not, this isn't like Chariots of Fire. You can, you can listen on a
2: Sunday. You definitely can. Keep Sunday special. Listen to Political Currency.
1: So that's all for today's episode of EMQs. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back next Thursday with Political Currency and then EMQs in a week's time.
2: And please do keep sending us your voice notes and emails via questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Make sure you hit follow on your podcast app so you get the latest episodes directly to your phone. Do send um, your comments, not just to us, but on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you use. Give us a review. We'd love that, especially if you like political yeah, currency. If it's And if review. you don't, you know, keep Sunday special. Yeah. Don't give keep, us a review. Give your thoughts to yourself. We'll see you Thursday. See
1: you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephoneca production.